Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome today's guest, the strong and powerful Victor Riccardi. Victor, are you ready to do this? Yes, I am. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Let's do this. Victor is an assistant professor of financial management and a behavioral finance and risk expert at Gucher College and an author of Investor Behavior, The Psychology of Financial Planning and Investing, and most recently, Financial Behavior, Players, Services, Products, and Markets. Victor, we're excited to have you on. I agree. I'm looking forward to it. Victor, tell us a little bit about your personal life and some more about your work and why you do what you do. Um, I guess I just, um, in terms of how I even, personal life was, I started investing in the stock market when I was 12 years old and my, my, my father was so supportive. Uh, both my parents are very supportive of just learning about money. So over time, I essentially became a finance professor because I just um, didn't necessarily enjoy uh, managing money for people. I essentially enjoyed teaching people about how to make money and all the mistakes I have made during my lifetime. So I, you know, I had the full gamut. I was an accountant. I've done um, all types of other consulting type of work, but I just realized being a teacher and educator and happened to stumble upon this wonderful area of behavioral finance about 20 years ago. And it really just completely changed my life in terms of uh, personal investing and professional investing. Excellent. Well, it's a big question, but what do people really need to know about your work? I would say just even whether you're a financial expert or an individual client or an individual investor is that we all suffer from certain types of biases when we make financial and investment decisions. So uh, I could go over just a couple of the the bigger uh, assumptions of behavioral finance. So there's really two classes. Of, there's one, people who are overconfident. They tend to feel very comfortable with their investments, uh, which leads to them trading too much, and many times that leads to low returns. The other type of investor typically are people who are status quo, what I would call status quo investors, meaning they become very complicit about their finances, they procrastinate. Um, so for example, many people you know, that many people fail to even open a retirement account. Uh, by the time they open a retirement account, they tend to procrastinate about it uh, and not monitor even once they make the investment. Another major theme in behavioral finance is people tend to be loss averse, meaning um, uh, losses tend to feel a lot more painful than we actually make money on upside gain. So it's, it's not um, necessarily even a dollar, it's partially it's a dollar loss, but it's also an emotional loss because we do not want, many of us do not want to admit when we make a bad investment. So we don't want to experience the notion of regret involving that emotional issue. And then another major theme is what's known as connected to that is what's known as the disposition effect in which we have a tendency to sell winners too early and to hold on to losing investments for too long. And that just gives you some of the, I would say some of the major assumptions uh, fundamental assumptions of behavioral finance. All right, so overconfidence, status quo, and really loss aversion. Those are some of the big ones. Yeah. So when we're talking about overconfidence, you mentioned that that causes people to make trades too frequently. 
Is there a good example of that? If I'm maybe I've, I've done a lot of research or I'm very familiar with a certain company or investment, how does that really manifest itself? Well, it may manifest itself in several ways in which you may take a position as to you feel very overconfident about a particular investment, especially if you traded on it and made money in the past and then you get back into it. You typically also take too large of a position relative to your overall portfolio. So say it wasn't, you have, say you have $100,000, a trader or somebody not thinking in those terms of a portfolio may have $50,000 of their wealth all in one stock. And so obviously that is not someone who's diversified enough. It's also connected with the overconfidence experience as we also suffer from familiarity bias. And, and the connection with that is we tend to invest in overly invest in investments that we feel very familiar with and underinvest in things that we are not as familiar with or we may be scared of. So, so many investors, for example, overweight their portfolio in domestic securities, such as the U.S. markets, but don't have enough diversification into international markets because they feel less familiar and they view those markets as being more risky. And the, the, the markets that they feel safer with, they, that are familiar with, they feel is less risky, for example. Got it. That is, that is a pretty classic bias right there. Is there a way that you would recommend that people take a look in the mirror and are able to, to recognize this bias on their own? I would just say, um, look how much money you have. Uh, think about how much, how diversified you are. I mean, again, to, to me, even just like the Morningstar box, having enough diversification across uh, small cap, large cap, and um, uh, mid cap, and then, but also breaking out your investment strategy, investment strategy by growth and, and value investing that would give you, for example, automatically six mutual funds, and then maybe adding a couple of international funds to that. That, that helps get that diversification going. But also, what's, look at also what your mindset is. I, I like to go to the track myself, for example, but even within my portfolio, I keep about 95% of my money in my 401k plan, for example, but then I have maybe 5% of my overall wealth, even less, I, I, I maybe will invest in individual stock and I'll trade that, but that, that small piece or that one account that I'm trading on does not represent any type of overall wealth, but if I wanna make a few bucks and put money into an individual stock, I have that there essentially, I can't just call it play money, but it's kind of like my IRA account with a few thousand dollars and and that's how I kind of uh, get my training mentality um, or my enjoyment of, of investing in stocks but then I take my rational mind and I put 95% or plus of my money in my retirement account because I can't trade that money so kind of that, that's how I use it and that's what how I train other people to uh, control those biases as, as, as an example. Excellent. When we talk about loss aversion, you mentioned this disposition effect. Can you go a little bit deeper into what that is and how that manifests itself? So typically, the rational school, which I would typically refer to as standard or traditional finance, would say a, uh, a gain or a loss on individual stock or investment is equivalent. So say $1,000 on the upside is a $1,000 loss on the downside. So the laws of erosion and the disposition effect relate to um, if you make $1,000 on, on the upside, it feels, but on a similar transaction, if you lost an equivalent amount of money, it would feel like a, a $2,000 loss. So there's essentially a multiplier effect in which on the downside, the loss feels a lot more 
painful. And additionally, um, if you're losing money on a stock and then all of a sudden you're, you're making money, but because you were losing money, you had tend to get out of it early, which is that disposition effect because you just want to make your money back at some point. Um, when the, on the, the other side of the disposition effect, which is the loss frame or the, the, law, the losing scenario, is we don't want to admit the mistake because we don't want to, you know, we don't, we don't want to admit that we made a bad investment decision, and we also don't want to then experience the regret of having realized selling the asset because we always have in our mind it's going to come back. It's going to be a great investment one day, and sometimes it just it never is. And so what that ultimately leads to many times, uh, the disposition effect will result in many times we, um, we pay higher capital gains taxes uh, on the upside because we get out of stock too early because we sell it less than a year. Uh, but then stocks that are losing in which we can minimize our, our capital gains or expand our capital losses, we don't want to actually realize them because uh, we don't want to go through the pain for that. So we wind up actually paying more taxes in some in some cases. Our brains are not always helping us, are they? Oh, no. I mean, that's why it's really um, the way I would think about um, the standard school versus the, the behavioral finance school is the rational school would say, that's how we're supposed to act. Behavioral finance says, looks at how we actually behave, which is not necessarily rational. But, but I think understanding our biases helps us in that if we realize what our trigger points are, whether in an up market or a down market, then if we put a rational strategy in place, then we're more likely to stick with that rational strategy. So I, I, uh, I kind of view it as, you know, b- both schools of thought many times are view, view as a debate, but I, I think they supplement each other in which if you can adhere to both tenets and use them correctly, you can ultimately make much better investment decisions overall. Got it. So I know that I, I was going through some of your work and I certainly saw a modern portfolio as being something that, that, that you talk about. When you talk about the rational mind or, or rational investing, are you sort of thinking about that in terms of using modern portfolio theory? And then we look at the what our brains are actually doing, which is sabotaging our investments by making bad emotional decisions. Is that a too simple it, way to think about exa- it? Exactly. So um, if you put a a full yeah. So I I I like the tools of, of modern portfolio theory. Uh, again, I just don't agree with the underlying assumptions. But if you put the proper tools in place, which is again I'm saying enough, enough diversification, using the time value of money, trying to get a reasonable a return of maybe eight to ten percent a year, uh, thinking about what all your financial goals are. As I said, enough diversification, uh, maybe doing things like um, you know, measuring what your overall risk tolerance is, sitting down with a financial planner or advisor, and taking that long-term view. The modern portfolio tools really work well, I think. The problem, though, is not enough people, because they don't understand those biases, can't stay with the portfolio theory. Um, so there's something called the uh, Delbar study, which always looks at, um, I don't know, and, and they measure, for example, they always uh, publish a report every year about what the average equity investor makes. So every time over a 10 year, when you're looking over a 10 year period or a 20 year period, the average investor makes about 5%. And so um, there's this 
uh, area that I've been looking at and I've been learning a lot about, which is essentially dealing with behavioral coaching or financial coaching, and which an advisor um, they're showing or claiming essentially that if you actually meet an advisor and they talk to people about these strategies, thinking about strategies and understanding these biases, that rather than getting the five and a half percent, maybe you can then help the client get seven and a half to eight percent. And that's a value added service that I think many um, financial advisors are going to start to talk about in the future because people you just can't tell people well, this is the advice that you need. You have to meet with them, engage them, explain to them, and as I said, try to help them understand those trigger points of behavioral finance are very important to helping them get higher returns. I find that to be fascinating that that the average investor is usually making around 5%. Because many times, they, well, many, many people will not hold an investment, so either it's status quo bias and they're not monitoring their portfolio and they wind up going outside their risk tolerance, and then once the market turns and goes down, they're overexposed in a different risk tolerance category, and then they pull up, they pull their money out at the worst possible time, or they don't have enough patience in which they're looking at things like the S&P 500, they're worried about that being their benchmark, and they don't keep their money in the same investments or the same mutual funds for you know more than maybe four or five years. So that's why I don't think people necessarily think to, need to think about the benchmarking as being the S&P 500 or always other um, blue, other categories of mutual funds. What If you view it, as, as I think people need to think about is what is their own personal investment return that they need to reach their financial goals. And so in the context of a portfolio, if that's 8% and you're meeting that 8% goal to reach maybe having $2 million in, uh, you know, at retirement or a million dollars, that's what people need to focus on, not on necessarily the um, individual benchmarking, as I said, the S&P 500, because then people are chasing returns. And so that, that's what causes them also get, they want to get that lower return of five, five and a half percent. Interesting. So you would encourage somebody to figure out what their number is and then not exactly. to necessarily worry what the S&P 500 is doing or what international equities are doing necessarily. Yeah, and that's why you should have something invested in those enough categories in which also that diversification is if you're diversified enough, the whole premise is you'll at least have some of your money in in the hot investment at that time. But also, being diversified means that you're going to have money in things that are, are not the hot topic. But the market runs in cycles where, you know, at the end of 1990s, everything was growth and they acted like value was dead. But when the internet bubble and, and the, the NASDAQ bubble went, uh, d during the early 2000s, even though we had a bear market, the, the stocks that recovered better were the value stocks. So it's very hard to say what cycle is going to do better, and that's why, again, having money in both and being diversified in both will ensure you always have money in the, a degree of money or a portion of your money in the hot category in that particular year. I have to ask what biases do you think are impacting 
cryptocurrency right now or people who are thinking about investing in cryptocurrencies? In my new book, I actually have a, I wrote a chapter myself on the psychology of speculation. So this wouldn't just be for cryptocurrency. This is any time anybody is experiencing some type of bubble. Uh, some of the, so there's a herd behavior. People feel this, you know, so initially people feel they, they want to belong. There's a group behavior, there's group thinking, which people want to follow the leader. Uh, so they want to feel like they're part of the group. And, the, and the, most people who haven't been in, say, uh, Bitcoin in the past three years want to now be part of the crowd. Um, another bias that what I didn't have discussed is what's known as representativeness in which people look at a small piece of data, so they're looking at two or three years of returns, and they're drawing the conclusion that um, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies are gonna go up for the next 12 to 18 months, and those returns are gonna repeat themselves based on the, the, the last one or two years of returns, for example. And then also things like overconfidence, hubris, mm -hmm. also, again, play into that. And so, but I would say definitely the herd behavior, the representativeness, and the overconfidence all play into a bubble situation. Excellent. So, you referenced working with a financial advisor. Is that something that you think everybody's situation is different, and so everybody needs to make these decisions for their own individual situation? But do you see value in working with financial advisors? Uh, yes, especially. I mean, it's one thing if you're in your twenties and you're just starting out. Maybe you don't have enough assets or you really don't need necessarily need a financial plan right away if you at least have some basic financial knowledge. But as you start to get into your, especially in your late 20s into your 30s, you start to have a family, you get married, um, even just with the things like estate planning, uh, retirement planning, if you're buying a house, getting people to, to uh, especially many people start student loans. So even, even in your 20s, uh, uh, somebody can uh, get you on a decent budget and help you pay off your student loans at the same time you're paying for retirement. I'm a perfect example. I, I mean, I just, I, and since I've been, a, been at my current institution in 2010, I'm actually, um, I'm six months away from paying off $200,000 in student loans. Congratulations. As I, uh, thank you. At the same time paying $200,000 off of student loans, I've been putting money into my retirement plan. But that was my personal choice. Um, I wanted to pay down my debt, but also the, the, the tax benefit of a, of, a, um, of a 403B plan or a 401K plan, essentially looking at the tax savings in my income, I realized that it did not necessarily make sense to pay off all of my, my student loans within a couple, a few years, but it certainly made sense within the time frame that I was looking at. I could, I, essentially, I could have pay, if I would have paid the minimum payment on my student loans, I'm currently 48, I could have, if I, I could have paid off my student loans till age 69. So I figured out the, the numbers, and by paying off my student loans early, even though I had a, only about a 4% uh, interest rate, I'm saving about $80,000 in interest over the next 20 years. Nice. And so, and so essentially that's, and, that, that's, and that's potentially that $80,000 of interest, for example, could be a, a, you know, at least a year and a half of income in retirement. So that then gives me the flexibility of saying, maybe I want to retire 
a year earlier than, than what, what my ideal retirement plan would be. In addition, instead of making that payment to the bank, once all my student loans are paid off, that payment will be coming back to myself. And that's when even people don't understand what debt, any type of debt. You know, you have your regular job in which you get your work, you're getting your employer, you're getting employer for your for your human capital. But when you have debt, the other person that you're working for is the bank. So do you want to work for yourself or do you want to work for the bank? And that's the other way of not being debt-free or having the least amount of debt as possible, the other way to think about it. Excellent. Well, Victor, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? I would say the difference-making tip would be when you're thinking about your investment, whether you're a, whether you're a planner sitting down with a client or a client yourself, frame your spending decisions as a investment decision. Meaning, we have a tendency to want to spend money today at the cost for, of investing for tomorrow. So, rather than, say, spend $200 on a pair of clothes today, say to yourself, I'm gonna put this $200 and, and, and additional money during the year towards my retirement account. But I'm not worried about, I'm gonna have, say, an extra 10000 an extra $100,000 in the future because people don't think about money, but think about that if you had an extra $100,000 in retirement, you're gonna be able to spend that money in the future. And maybe that will allow you to take an extra cruise in, in retirement each year. Maybe you'll be able to buy a better car. Maybe you'll be able to play golf on better golf courses in faster fashion. So link, whenever you're trying to save for investments, especially for a long-term activity, Think about, don't just think about the money you're trying to save to have in the future, but that money in the future is going to allow you to have a higher standard of living, but it's going to make the connection in which you're going to be able to enjoy that money eventually because you eventually are going to expend it. It's not that you're, you know, I'm gonna have an annuity, I'm gonna have this stream of income. It's gonna be, that money is gonna be used for essentially a fund activity. If I don't spend as much today, to have a better tomorrow. That is great stuff. I think that definitely warrants a come on. Come on. Victor, thank you for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Probably the easiest way is if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can either search by my my screen name, Victor Atari, or if you just uh, search by the uh, keyword behavioral finance, I have over 79,000 Twitter followers. And what I do is I post research about uh, my my own my own research and behavioral finance and personal finance. But the other thing that what I do is I whenever I see content that's very interesting from the New York Times, Yahoo, or or related to behavioral finance and personal finance, I post that on my um, Twitter feed. And kind of uh, I'm less about worrying about. I do promote my books and, and myself to a degree. I'll be honest about that. But I'm also really in it because. I, I have a passion for people learning and improving their financial literacy. So I use my Twitter account really to educate the overall public. And I don't have any political agenda. I don't talk about politics. So I kind of just try to educate the public no matter who's president. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Victor your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Thank you again, Victor, and until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we're all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!